We can talk about anything you want as Jake wants his ignorance. Are you still fiddling? No. Oh, no, I think I'm sorry. Sorry. I was actually, I was guys, uh, really, sometimes Spacing I get in this like laser, <laughs> laser focus mode sometimes. Well, yeah, I'm a programmer. That's what I do for a living. <laughs> so I understand laser focus. That's all I do. I used to work at a, um, a co-working place. Yeah. And what would the the point of that is I telecommute for a company in New York, right? So there's no I don't have any coworkers. So anyway, I'd go into this, I'd pay rent to go into this co-working space where other people who are also telecommuting for wherever, you know, uh-huh. some of them work for places in Omaha, but other, you know, all over the world. And <laughs> I'd get in there and I'd be so focused, I'd I'd like look up and I'd be like, "Oh, hey Andy, how you doing? When did you get here?" And he's like, "Half an hour ago, dude." <laughs> <I'm> like, oh. <laughs> so, like, yeah, I just I totally disappeared. So the rule was, you know, when I was the, the I was the boss a long time ago, and the rule was that you have to say my name, wait for me to look at you, and that's when you actually have my attention. Because if you just come to my doorway and just start talking, I have no idea you're even even there. So. Welcome to Jay Flance's Ignorance. This is episode 35. I'm with Chris Hoover yet again. Uh, we took a couple weeks off for very good excuses. I don't remember what they were, but they were excellent excuses. Very good excuses. I remember exactly that they were excellent. I don't What the hell were we doing? Anyway. Well, like two weeks ago, we were sawing down and oh, tree stuff. Yeah. And yeah, once uh, you make me physically exercise for hours, I don't want to use my brain anymore. <laughs> Hi, Missy. How are you? Uh, so today we'll be talking about decentralization and in what is becoming a theme for this podcast. This podcast, I think, is Chris and I talking about other better podcasts. So maybe you just want to go listen to those other better podcasts. This one is called Your Undivided Attention and a specific episode called The Dark Side of Decentralization. And we'll be chatting about that. This speaks to me on many, many levels, so I don't know how long this episode is going to get. Uh, <laughs> so you'll have to just cut me off repeatedly when I'm um, going off on way too many tangents or we don't tr- circle around to a point or something. So in the podcast series, Your Undivided Attention, they interviewed an author named Audrey Kurth Cronin. And she has a new book out called Power to the People, How Open Techno- Technological Innovation is Arming Tomorrow's Terrorists. So the episode title, The Dark Side of Decentralization, and this book title is a little bit scary, and I don't, I'm don't, i not dwelling on all this darkness and how things go like extremely wrong or can go extremely wrong. I'm more fascinated about decentralization as a concept in principle and as applied to several different facets of my life. Um, and so for me, uh, that title of that book is a little bit, not what I want to focus on with you for two hours, <laughs> but we can we can end up doing whatever we want. So so I've got uh, I don't know twenty talking points here from that episode from the episode of your undivided attention, and uh, I just thought it was a really fascinating conversation, and we could react to it. And then you've got a page of notes or something, right? So mm-hmm. apparently, oh yeah, you've got stuff to react to too. So so. Uh, how that episode starts is they're just asking the basic question, is decentralization a good thing? What has been happening as technology progresses, the focus of her book is largely on the decentralizing of the capacity. This is a direct quote, quote, decentralizing the capacity for catastrophic destruction. So among examples of this are uh, I can get a 3D printer in my basement and I can create a gun, right? And that wasn't possible before. You had to have some serious skills or access to facilities 
in order to get a gun. You couldn't 3D print a gun before 3D printed guns were a thing. Uh, cryptocurrencies are another topic that I'd like to touch on. And then I'd like to touch on Twitter versus a thing that I'm on that's kind of like Twitter but different because it's decentralized called Mastodon. And then uh, in the book and in that interview, they talk a lot about uh, the invention of dynamite and how before the age of dynamite, they used to still have to blow holes through mountains in order to get roads and railroads in. But before dynamite, they were using raw gunpowder. And raw gunpowder is very unstable, and once you light it, it's going, right? And so Alfred Nobel, by, through the invention of dynamite, invented a way that you can take nitroglycerin and make it a more stable substance until the primer cap or whatever actually sets it off. So you can take my understanding of dynamite is you can hit it with a hammer and it's fine. As long as you don't have a primer, a priming cap, and light that thing, it's a very stable substance. And that's saved thousands of lives in construction. And Alfred Nobel, the invention of that um, was was huge, my understanding, for uh, the history of construction. The dark side, as they <laughs> put it in their framework, is once you have things like dynamite that are readily available and anyone can go into a dynamite store and buy dynamite and do whatever they want with it because there's no regulation, there's no registration, there's no need to prove that you have any legitimate use for it, that that has led to, historically, a whole series of bad things. If anyone has the power to explode a railroad track, for example, or explode a school, or explode a church, or a government building, that for the first time you were enabling individuals with an amount of power that they individuals had never had before. So if you had to club people to death with a club versus you can blow up an entire building and have it crush everyone that's in the building via dynamite, that this invention was a decentralization of power that used to be only the only governments had the power to organize and enough money to organize or, you know, kings with lots of servants or, you know, hired goons, uh, armies of people, that individuals could suddenly start utilizing technologies that didn't exist before that in destructive ways that were bad for everybody. Did you want to react? I feel like I've been talking for 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so we did kind of, you did summarize, I think a lot of things. I, I'm not, a, I'm not a hundred percent sure about the significance of the dynamite discoveries and all that stuff. And and the only reason why I say that is because I didn't know I think in the podcast, they actually say something to the effect that um, TNT was really dangerous. And then dynamite was like this more controlled substance that was invented that saved lives as opposed to TNT. And um, I actually didn't know that that was the case. And I still don't know if that was the case. Uh, just for historical accuracy, I just want to mention maybe this is something for us to research <laughs> that. Um, Dynamite is just a more potent explosive and therefore more effective, but it, its base is nitroglycerin, which is extremely unstable in and of itself. And what dynamite is, is nitroglycerin that has been stabilized to the point to where it needs a blasting cap in order to be safe. So the safety, I guess what I'm saying, trying to say is, is I don't know if there's a safety difference between TNT and and 
dynamite. Whereas there was a big safety problem switching from TNT to nitroglycerin it, in and of itself. So that was actually just when I was listening to the podcast, I was like, man, that and, and I'm certainly not an expert on TNT or gunpowder, but I do know that dynamite is used for heavy duty like land excavation and mountain excavation where it would take a a lot of TNT to do it. The problem was we couldn't use nitroglycerin, which is just as explosive as dynamite, but because of it, it's so unstable, like nitroglycerin itself, like you drop it on the floor and everybody dies. And I think that, and they even talk about the owner or the inventor of it. And I think that people even died working on the formula to make it more stable because nitroglycerin is such an unstable base product and what their amazing invention was the stabilization of nitroglycerin itself so i don't think that that's really important but just so people know that there might be a little bit i to be honest i should have looked up the history it it actually kind of caught me off guard to hear that the comparisons that they made but i I don't think it ruins – it doesn't ruin like the overall point that they're trying to make is that at the time, once they invented it, dynamite was everywhere and sold on the corner of streets, <laughs> which is kind of a crazy concept. Yeah, so – yeah, I don't, I don't know the history to uh, – I, I don't know. This was just one of the things in her book that she w- was talking about. So let, oh, let, me yeah, use, yeah. let me use an example of decentralization that I do know a lot about. Are you, are, are you ever on Twitter or – Oh no, and I, oh, I completely agree that decentralization is going on. And I, I and that's I guess what I was trying to say is that even if their history is a little bit off with the fundamental points of dynamite, their their overall point was easily easily dynamite was made from that point on easily accessible, and and it was available at every street corner, which took the power, it gave regular people power, yeah, to go out and buy it and cause these really atrocious things. Yeah. So yeah, I I get what the 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 point is. I I guess uh, in spite of the detailed differences, at least what I recollect about dynamite history, it 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 does illustrate the decentralization of power, like they're trying to do, which is the real point. I'm not trying to take away from that. I just if anybody, I don't know if like five people listen to the podcast, but <laughs> well, apparently we're pushing double digits now. So no kidding. Yeah, it's crazy. Wow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty cool. I mean, yeah, if we got triple digits someday, that would be yeah. insane. <laughs> so the thesis is that technology is enabling people to do more and more things individually that used to be the sole um, control of governments, large institutions, yeah. um, you know, kings with lots of money and knights and soldiers and, you know, all that stuff. And now individuals are being much more empowered on an individual basis. Right. So, like, so one. One platform where I find this interesting is lots of people know what Twitter is. I'm on another thing called Mastodon, which is very Twitter-like. But the big difference between Twitter and Mastodon is that Mastodon is this decentralized architecture. So instead of having a single server where you go to Twitter.com and there's Twitter.com and that's it, what Mastodon is is um, is everyone runs – not everyone, sorry – People are free to, because it's all open source technology, people are free to spin up their own Mastodon servers all over the world. So there's thousands of them or tens of thousands of Mastodon servers. And so when you go to join Mastodon, you don't go to, uh, you don't go to a single website and join the one server 
with central control and total authority in the hands of, you know, whoever that owns the company that controls billions of people and how they communicate and they, they have the ultimate authority over all of that. What you do is you find a server that you want to join and then you join that server and then the servers communicate between each other. And so I, like my account on Mastodon is controlled by someone I've never met in France, right? Where I can read (laughs) what they've been posting, like on Twitter, but I'm subject to their whims in terms of whether or not they're going to kick me off the platform instead of the central whims of, you know, Twitter incorporated. Mm. Right. Right. And I've found that to be a much healthier environment where I can find a server that fits my, um, my service agreement, uh, what I want out of, you know, quote community end quote, as much as anything online is ever actually a community. <laughs> but if I want a bunch of flaming, you know, lefty liberal types that are in there hugging trees, I can join a server that's explicitly about that. And that is our policy. And they kick out Nazis on site and you know, there's just no question about it. <laughs> right. And so the, the instance, so you can choose whatever instance you want. So, you know, white supremacists are going to find their own instance of that, start their own instance of that, right? Mm -hmm. Multiple instances of that spring up. And then what happens is instead of Twitter either having a policy which aggressively uh, deplatforms these people, right, centrally, what happens is that different lists of servers start blacklisting other lists of servers Mm -hmm. so they don't see them anymore, right? So my little protective echo chamber of my, you know, hippie brethren, you know, of of communist wannabes, um, we can just hang out in a, quote, safe space, end quote, of, (laughs) you know, if if he left us, et cetera. So wherever you're coming from on the political spectrum, the technology enables this decentralization of um, the – of, of of communities, right? So each each community, each server instance can set up whatever rules it wants, and you can say whatever you want that the admin allows on that server. But that doesn't mean that any other server necessarily is going to listen to you. So what happens is blacklists form of lists of ad- administrators of servers that generally agree on certain principles of. You know, no hate speech, no, you know, whatever, no violence, no kitty porn, no, you know, whatever their rules of service are, that they've decided that if users of instances uh, violate those rules, they're blacklisted from the entire community, right? Like you can have your little corner of whatever, and that's, you know, whatever, do what you're going to do because we're, you know, nobody's law enforcement, but we're going to be connected to those servers and the millions of people that have similar values in terms of terms of service, right? Mm -hmm. So in that ecosystem, then it's not that any one person at Twitter can decide what the global terms of service are. What happens is tens of thousands of server administrators decide for their sub community, right? What their terms of service are, and then those servers interconnect to each other, right? And so that decentralization is really fascinating to me and how that plays out. And the fact that it's now possible for any Yahoo like me who wants to host a server for 10 bucks a month 
to launch a server, which theoretically could get really popular, right? Like I could end up with tens of thousands of users like on my server and I'm the the god king of because <laughs> I could kick off anyone I wanted to. That has never happened before. I don't think technology has allowed this to be possible that around the world, tens of thousands of people could join my, or millions of people could join a community that I personally control where it's easy to set up at, mm -hmm. from the beginning, right? Like I can just download the software, install it and call it, you know, chat.js.net and boom, I'm the God of that, that universe. So I, I find all of that really interesting. And then I find it really disappointing when I hear so I'll see, so on Twitter, it's called tweets and on Mastodon, it's called toots. So a toot comes across where somebody's really upset that a server basically got um, drummed out of the Mastoverse, it's called <laughs> like the, the, the universe of all the Mastodon servers, <laughs> they call mm -hmm. it the Mastoverse. So a server got um, harassed and shut down. And it was for um, people of of color, black, and people of of color. That was the instance, and it got drummed out of existence. And I'm like, I'm not questioning that it happened. I'm trying to understand what actually happened because my understanding of the technology is that the whole point of the decentralization technology is that I can form whatever kind of community I want and kick off anybody that I don't want on there. And how is it possible that you could get drummed out of existence? Like how, how is that, how is that even a thing? Right. And I couldn't gather enough information to understand what happened to these servers. Right. But they're claiming that the entire masterverse is racist, right. Against people of color because they're very angry because they've been attacked apparently by hundreds of accounts. So I don't blame them for having that opinion. If, if a hundred hundreds of people attacked me for being, you know, having a stupid middle name, I'd feel like I got attacked <laughs> by hundreds of people because that's true. That's what happened. But as a technologist, I don't understand how, how it is that the technology didn't facilitate them having whatever it is they wanted to have as in terms of community in in peace and quiet basically like you can set up whatever gateway you want to have whatever walled garden you want to discuss whatever you want under whatever context you want and how do you get drummed out of that when it's decentralized you know what i mean and the answer is very simple when it's twitter or facebook the answer is twitter corporate or facebook facebook yeah. corporate decided to kick you out and now you're out and that's it right that's the whole <laughs> that's the whole picture there's nothing else to say yeah but how in a decentralized universe of technology is it possible that the technology doesn't enable people to have whatever community they want to have? Whether or not they're going to connect to other communities, that is certainly ever, always an open question because any other community could decide to disconnect from you at any time for whatever reason or no reason, right? Like that could certainly happen. But how they got drummed off the Mastiverse, I, I never understood. Yeah, that's crazy. I, I, don't, I don't know. To be honest, I think the only times I've ever experienced anything with Mastodon was uh, when you send me links to some of your toots. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> that, that is interesting. Um, I, I, I do think that there there is some – so I don't know specifically what accounts were, were canceled there. But um, I, I do think that this is an illustration, though, of how – people can't universally um, t 
take the power that's given to them from decentralization of power to the extreme uh, by kind of just doing whatever they want. So even in this case, you know, somebody has the freedom to make their own Mastodon server and that's kind of decentralized from a big corporation, but that does, but that doesn't mean that they can do or get away with whatever they want to do. And I'm not saying they deserve to be canceled, but no, I don't, the, it, like the whole point is I can spin up a server for whatever purposes, you know, mm-hmm. you know, I, I want to start a, a server, which is tapioca pudding. Mm-hmm. So this is the tapioca pudding server. I could start that up today. And if you mention anything that's not tapioca pudding, I'll kick you off. There's nothing <laughs> stopping me from doing that. Right. Tapioca pudding sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> See, I've got, there's got two users already. <laughs> this is going to be great. <laughs> uh, but, were, were, you, were you saying, did I misunderstand what you were saying? I thought you were saying that. Um, so I guess what I'm trying to say is that in the, to bring it back to the original podcast about talking about, uh, so basically there's two extremes to decentralization, right? There's the, there's the side where it kind of gives people more freedom. And then it get on the other extreme, there's basically a side that lets people do whatever they want to include any type of catastrophe that they want to inflict on other people, whether that be with guns or, or bombs or, or even social media, they even bring up. I guess what I'm trying to say is, is that, that is true to an extent, but generally speaking, I think that they're to the extreme of, you know, bombings or whatever can be had because of decentralization of power. There's a pushback in society in general to keep the extremes from happening. Not that they don't happen, but they're, and, and I think they even allude to this towards the end of the, um, the podcast where they're talking about, um, how in a decentralized world we need to have like um closer knit communities yeah uh you know so that way we can have that sort of so so you know if we see that somebody in our neighborhood is really having a hard time or we think that they're about to do something bad you know we're we're close enough to them that we can see that and even in the case of Mastodon, i don't know what they were doing that made them get canceled and I don't even know, like you said, I don't even know how they could if it's not centralized. I mean, who, who's, right. who's who's doing that? But um, even I, I can't imagine them being innocent of doing, not, you know, of not doing something controversial. Well, some <laughs> right. some people just get attacked for being who they are. Right? Yeah, that, that could be, yeah. Because there are some flaming assholes out there on the internet that just attack people because they're women or attack people because they're, you know, gay or, you know, whatever. Right. Oh yeah. So my, my point is, is that I, I guess I'm mentally saying, well, they probably did something wrong, but that may not be the case. You're blaming I, the victim, Chris. I, oh yeah. my God. Yeah. <laughs> You're um, so canceled. But I guess my point is, is that it seems like there's always this social pressure to counteract extremes, which is why I think I'm mentally saying, I'm mentally trying to justify me believing that maybe they were being racist or something. And then people didn't like what they were saying and, you know, tried to get them canceled. Maybe it was because they were black. If that's the case, then we probably should get those people canceled. I don't know. <laughs> but um, it, it certainly would be interesting to know why they, they did what they did. Yeah, and um, I, I couldn't get the details of it at all, right? Yeah. Like I couldn't track that because I'm like, I want to help. Like I, I don't understand. I'm a technologist. I've been doing this crap for 27 years. If there's some way the technology could be better – 
the how you know what is that because i i don't understand how in in that system of technology that it's even possible to get thrown out of it like how do you right. get now, i i understand you could get abused to death right like you could get flooded with so many messages that it's just not worth it anymore so you decided to shut it down that's fine yeah. but like i get that i mean that's not fine it's horrible but it could happen like that i comprehend but the whole design of the art, the architecture of the system is such that I would think it would be highly resistant to that being possible. Mm-hmm. So yeah, at 13 minutes in this podcast, they go into the bowling alley and bowling alley analogy. Dear Lord, <laughs> speech impediment, bowling alley analogy. <laughs> so what they, what they say as the, in this, the context of decentralization and modern, modern tech, there's, there's a narrow strip of success. And what's happened is while you're bowling, there's a, there's a goal, there's a gutter on one side and there's a gutter on the, on the other side. And what we're trying to do is thread the needle to mix my metaphors, threaded the needle on public policy so that we don't end up in one gutter or the other. And one of the gutters is that disasters occur because there are people in their basements that are printing biological weapons that kill millions of people like that's a bad result on the one side right and then on the other side is a bad result where we overreact with legislation and surveillance to the point where we're living in some kind of dystopian authoritarian surveillance hellscape where no one can go anywhere or do anything or say anything because we've overreacted to the problem of um these bad actors to the extent where society is now a nightmare to live in completely right yeah so one we can't allow people to make nuclear bombs in their basement and blow us all up that's not okay that's the first gutter and two we can't overreact to the point where we're going to burn all the books about atomic energy and about how atoms work because that's the only way we're going to stop people from blowing us all up in their basements with atomic bombs is to burn all the books, right? So there's this thin strip of success that we're trying to weave. And as we, as we try to control the, the powers that we're granting to individuals, you know, these, these crazy powers over millions of people that we're granting, we're, we're not granting it to them. They've, they've become like, you know, people on TikTok, people on YouTube, these influencers have millions of followers, which is more than people used to read newspapers. Like major humongous newspapers historically wouldn't have millions of people reading their newspaper, right? And yet you've got millions of people watching individual influencers and reacting to that, which can be used in extremely bad ways. And the the power that those individuals have come with no, like, societal, like, training or responsibility like we're, we don't hold them to any higher standard of behavior as they gain disproportionate like historically unthinkable powers over millions of people without like being elected for example right so like the president of the united states has a lot of power or congressmen have congress people have a lot of power over millions of us how many is it 330 million <laughs> <laughs> but we elected them and they went through this severe vetting process and, you know, whatever. And we've seen them for, you know, hours and years. Uh, but any Yahoo on YouTube can post something that goes viral or on TikTok and it goes viral. 
and sways millions of people into thinking that that there's going to be that one of the examples they used was that there's going to be uh, next Thursday is National Shoot Up Your School Day, right? You remember mm-hmm. this part of the podcast, and that is an, a very effective terrorism ploy. Is to take this message. It goes viral because you've just terrified a shitload of parents all over the country, right? The National Shoot Up Your School Day. And as a disruption tactic, right, as the definition of terrorism is, you know, scaring the citizens, the non-combatants, citizens, um, one of two things are going to happen. Either, either it's a hoax, but you scared millions of people, which is great because you, if you're a terrorist, you want to scare millions of people. Or some kids with some guns actually go in and shoot up their school that day, right? Both results are insanely bad and never before in history has the uh, social media landscape, right? You used to just freaking talk to your neighbors face to face. We've never had this capacity for a message to go viral and hit millions of people around the world in minutes, you know? And that, that the, the concern is, um, that, and the discussion, you know, so this podcast is an hour long, her book takes several hours to read. I assume I haven't read it. Um, but the, <laughs> the, the concerns around decentralization and the, this, uh, unprecedented power of specific individuals to an influence millions of other individuals as they see fit is new. And we're trying to figure out what to do about that. Yeah. That's, that's my, my read on what they were saying in the interview. Yeah. And, and I think that they do it. They do. I think at the beginning of the podcast, admit that when the most of the time, and I think the majority of decentralization is actually good, but the podcast and the book that this, the, that she writes is about the dangers of taking it too far. I guess you could say, mm-hmm. I, I think that um, the internet itself was a big major step in the decentralization area. I, I think that one problem that I have with their kind of overall argument is I, I don't know if making policy based on fear and regulations based on fear is the right attitude to have. I, I think I say that because I think it's always easy to instill fear in others. And I, I think it was uh, Machiavelli. That's what they're scared of. They're scared of the, the ease of which the, the fear. That's the worry, right? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. they're freaking me out. It's working, see? Yeah. So I think, It's so easy to scare people, and I'm scared right now. It, yeah, and I, I, Machiavelli was the one I think that uh, hundreds and I don't, I don't even know what year it was that he came up with this uh, concept, but he basically said that um, if you had to choose between having people love you or fear you, you should choose fear over love. And the reason why is because you can force people to fear you. You can't force them to love you. Mm. And I, I think that in a political world like ours, I think that that's, I think that that's also, I, I don't think the choices become love and fear. I think they become reason and fear. And I, I think the argu- same argument still af- applies. You can't, f- you can't force people to reason with you, but you can force them to fear you or whatever thing that you're trying to avoid. I don't like the outcome of that because I generally think that uh, people are for the most part good. And anytime we try to control people, it turns out bad or it doesn't work. (laughs) 
And oh, we should control mass murderers, right? We should put them in jail. Oh yeah, we should definitely make the rational choice. <laughs> yeah, so society needs controls of individuals yeah, right? to because we realize that it would cost more to society to leave them outside of prison than it would to put them in prison. Right. right. That's the rational choice that we're trying to make here. And so, and you can kind of look, so like the internet, I would say is probably the decentralizing thing that's happened in our lifetime. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, it's just information um, out there everywhere you go and you can see how different countries and organizations have said, well, that too, that is too much decentralization. Let's, Let's uh, instill in people the fear that we need to make the regulations that we need to curb these fears that we're creating. Um, China, you know, uh, Russia, all these other these kind of really uh, uh, dominating countries or dominating is probably not the right word, but the ones that want to control their citizenry are attacking the Internet and using fear to implement whatever policy or principle that they want to filter out of the Internet. I think that because people are so manipulated with fear, fear is a natural instinct that we have. And I'm not saying that you should ignore fear, right? But I don't think that fear should be the only reason why we make a decision. But politicians generally solicit that part of us in order to get what they want because people use that that emotion to control their lives and control their decisions. They can't, it's something that they can't suppress. And uh, there, there's other emotions that are similar to fear where I think that they should always take a back seat to reason, but it's really hard with the human instincts that we have to do that. You know, I, we could say uh, empathy is one. Um, uh, shame is another. Guilt is another, you know, like uh, you, you, any one of those, you can get people to override their rational decision-making skills by forcing those feelings onto them. And I, I think that fear is probably the king of them all. It's just not reason enough to establish a certain point for the rails of the bowling alley, <laughs> right? <laughs> the bowling alley is kind of a weird, it was even a weird analogy for me because I, I get what she's trying, they're trying to say. I, I guess I just, it, it's hard for me to think that the driving force behind their points that they're making, which is fear, should be a deciding factor, I guess. Well, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know that they have any answers to the, the, the they're, they're just raising the, you know, the, this conversation takes an hour. And is just bringing up a lot of really interesting, I think, history and really interesting phenomenon that are that are going on with people that you know resonates with me on several of these axes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I love their bowling alley analogy. So if it didn't make sense to you, uh, I'll try again. I can take another stab at it. Oh no, did it's you, okay. It it's, there's no reason to beat that to death. I guess what I'm trying to say is is that uh, I was trying to relate my point to the bowling alley, and I, I don't think I could do it successfully. <laughs> oh, you, oh, yeah. oh, oh. So, like, I, I think if I were to say anything about the bowling alley analogy is that um, it's almost like they're saying that the court upon which we live our life's game, on one side there is complete freedom and the other side is regulation. 
And what we want to do is enclose those in to the point to where we can get a strike, right? That's basically what they're no, trying I, to say. I don't think so. I, th- I think I think what they're saying is we all want to be rolling down the middle of the alley, right? Oh, yeah. The, to hit the pins. That's what we want. We want success at the end and hit the pins. One way this can go terribly wrong is if someone is 3D printing bioweapons and releasing them in the wild because they have so much freedom that they killed millions of people, right? Mm-hmm. With homemade 3D printed DNA strands. Like we can't let them do that. We can't let them kill millions of people, right? That technology mm-hmm. can't be out there. Freely available, unregulated, nobody monitoring, mm-hmm. et cetera. Right. And the, the other, the other gutter is we overreact to the fear of that in such a way that we've made daily life miserable because what we've done is put cameras up everybody's butts 24 seven and nobody can do anything ever uh, because we're on lockdown constantly. Right. Mm-hmm. So the, those are the, the two the, that's, those are the two gutters in the analogy, right? Is that we have disaster caused by, we're just going to ignore it and pretend that freedom is the only thing that matters, including the freedom to die from a terrorist bombing. And the other gutter is that we turn our lives into a authoritarian hellscape. So we have to not overreact. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's how we win. Right. And I guess what I'm trying to, what I'm trying to say is, is that if getting a strike is a successful life where we protect everybody and I, and I'm, I'm the one that's living this life and I'm, I'm continually getting strikes, right? I'm, I'm continually knocking down all 10 pins. If I have the desire to murder someone in cold blood, that in and of itself is not a strike, right? It's almost like we're looking at, and, and so like, that means I'm intentionally trying to shoot off to the side. And the idea of the things that you're saying, the the regulation or the surveillance is there to keep me from, keep my bowling ball from straying too far, right? Yeah, um, like you killing someone for no reason, right. that's a bad outcome. Right. So it's it's hard for me to believe, I guess, that either one of those prevents me from intentionally missing the pins. Even if it goes into the gutter, I oh, still no. miss the pins. Yeah, individuals will still roll yeah. into the gutters. Yeah. So, but um, hopefully, uh, you know, three hundred and three thirty million of us yeah. can, generally speaking, not fall into one of these two opposite gutters where we've yeah. under or overcorrected for the problem of decentralization of the powers of harming massive numbers of people. Right. And I guess what my point is, is that I think to really the, and, 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 and this is, I think where I think a lot of gun control advocates probably misunderstand, uh, second amendment advocates <laughs> in the sense that, um, gun control would be like the gutters. Would you agree with that? It would be like at least one side of the gutters in this analogy. Right. And no, I'm I'm pro gun control, so. Right, that's what I'm saying. So, like, uh, gun regulation, gun regulations would be like, <laughs> yeah, we're going to create these regulations in order to prevent people from getting out of control. Like, that's the whole point of regulations, right? 
to be like, right. well, we we don't want these people to have it because they're going to do stuff bad. So we're going to, they're not, they're intentionally missing their pins. <laughs> yeah. No, no, nobody's shooting up the mall today and yeah. killing 50 people. Right. So, and we're not overreaching to the point where all these bad things have happened unnecessarily. Right. right. And a, and a, and a second amendment person would say, that includes me and my 50 guns where I'm going to keep my 50 guns and I'm not hurting anybody. So leave me alone. Right. Right. And they would say, you've hit the gutter. If you've taken my, taken any of my guns or, you know, large capacity magazines away from me or whatever. Right. Right. And, and as long as you don't go shoot up the 50 people, then society wins. Right. I think as long as your guns don't kill anybody, society won and they, the society rule to strike. That's great. Right. So, and, and this is where I kind of, um, I, I guess I don't like the analogy in the sense that. Oh, I love this one. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm going to keep defending this analogy. I love it. <laughs> Convince is me. Is that I think what makes us really be good at uh, getting strikes is the moral connection between people's right to their own life and and continually having a society and individuals with that moral compass to to want to get the strike, right? Yeah, that is literally what they say at 36 minutes. Right. So you've said that twice, is we really have to take care of each other. Yeah. We can't let people in isolation end up with, you know, Gatling guns right. in their basement because so, that's going to be bad for society the day they, cr- they crack. <laughs> right. So, so yeah, at 36 minutes in the podcast, they literally talk about mental health and taking care of each other. That's the way you diffuse the fact that it is theoretically possible that an idiot like me could get my hands on something really powerful that could be really disastrous for a lot of people. Right. Is that you build those connections in the community. Right. And and I guess what I'm trying to say is, is that it's that moral compass of an individual that says murder is bad. Mm-hmm. And so, like, let's say it's me in the bowling alley, and I think murder is bad. So I'm continually getting strikes, and I'm never even hitting the gutter, mm-hmm. right? Um, I've never murdered anybody ever, right? And I'm old as hell. But when somebody gets it in their brain that they want to murder somebody, mm-hmm. then it's a different game altogether, and the, therefore the gutters don't matter. That because they're basically turning 180 degrees. And throwing their ball, bowling ball at somebody's head that's in the audience, right? Right. And, and therefore, the gutters didn't do anything. <laughs> and that's what I'm trying to say is is that to a lot of people, they perceive the argument in the as – so I do think that the bowling analogy actually represents how people feel about it. I guess what I'm arguing is that the bowling alley analogy – doesn't fit how everyone views regulations. And I certainly don't view regulations like that. And in case in point, if, if I have, if there's a regulation to not take a gun on the school property, but I have it in my head to murder somebody. Murder is like evil on level 10, but theoretically just taking a gun onto school property is not evil at all. What what is it about that law or that regulation that prevents the super evil outcome? Right? There is no there is no gutter, is what I'm trying to say. They've they've completely spun around and they're not even on the bowling alley anymore. 
So how does it apply? That that is that is kind of my overall disagreement with the bowling alley analogy is that it doesn't fit everyone's view about what regulations do. If that makes sense. At at the end of the day, I guess it, it's hard to say when you're talking about something like murder or mass murder. Once they get it in their head to do that, which I think is actually pretty rare, right? In the grand scheme of things, like you said, there's like 330 million people in the United States. If if we had somebody uh, commit the uh, Oklahoma City bombing again, I, I can't even remember how many people they killed, like 130, 130 people or something. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that would be one person in 330 million people that did that atrocious act, right? I mean... It's already illegal to kill people by blowing them up with bombs. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. In a way, I I get their point. They're just saying that it's easier for those people to do that um, because of decentralization. But even though that per- that individual, uh, why can't I think of his name right now? Timothy McVeigh. Yeah, oh, that gosh. <laughs> oh, sorry. I didn't know you were searching for his name. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> no, that's it. <laughs> you know, like when he had it in his head, you know, it it, it seemed like uh, uh, historically, you know, he told a lot of people that he was continually be, being upset with the government and all these different things. He was he was going around and telling people that uh, um, people need to be taught a lesson and we need to fight and all these different things. But still, yet again, nobody did anything. You know, people do these really atrocious acts, and there's people that live with them, and they don't know they're about to do these acts, and that's because they're pieces of shit, and they don't want to be stopped. So why would they tell anybody or give any signs? It, it just goes back to my original argument that we're trying to instill people fear in people to the point to where we can we can present a problem and then magically have the solution for it <laughs> in the form of whatever regulation we want to do, and then we present that. Um, so I'll let you. I'll give you some time no, to talk. I, and- <laughs> I think so. I, I think maybe the struggle that you're having with the analogy is that. Well, I, I don't. I don't think it really applies to the. So, but I think what I hear you saying is that the the right amount of regulation is almost no regulation because if people are going to do bad things, they're going to do bad things, and criminals don't give a shit whether or not there's a sign that says "keep this gun off school property." Right? Mm-hmm. They don't care. The only people that you're affecting are law-abiding people who aren't going to shoot up the school anyway mm-hmm. right that's the argument from from gun folks all the time and you're you're always right that nobody has pushed the button on their uh you know so <laughs> well i guess we can circle back to this one again so like six months ago i asserted that it's not okay for people to have nuclear bombs in their basement, mm-hmm. right? Because the only conceivable purpose for that is to kill millions of people. So if you're found with nuclear fission material in your basement, I don't care what kind of research you're doing. I don't care what kind of religious credo you have. I don't care because it's not okay for an individual to have the ability to kill millions of people by pushing a button. That's just not okay. So that person needs to be in jail, right? And I think I eventually won you over to agreeing with me, right? Or have we? Do we need to revisit this again? Because six well, months has gone by. Well, I guess it depends on what I'm agreeing with. So, I would say that we. I don't know if I ever agreed that just having possession of something 
with no intent to do evil with it and no proof from the government that they're going to do evil. I don't think that technically it's morally appropriate to throw somebody in prison for that. And so, so you're telling me you walk into my basement and I've got a nuclear bomb sitting there. You don't think I should go to prison? I definitely think it would be warning signs. <laughs> <laughs> So let's, uh, so like, I thought I had you agree with me, and now so, we're back to where we started. So if it's in your house, I would say <laughs> I would probably have some concern for that. Um, and uh, so because not because – so I do think I know you well enough to know that you don't have any intent on blowing up a nuclear bomb, right? Why the fuck do I have a nuclear bomb, Chris? But – if I'm not going to push the button, so, what else does it do? It doesn't do anything except kill everyone in Omaha. So there's no other purpose for that fucking thing. So and it's it, sitting there with a big red button <laughs> and you don't think I should be in jail. So like, let's say before dynamite was created, we had a regulation that said, all right, nobody can have any possession of nitroglycerin. Why, why are you, why are you switching the scenario on me? Why don't you give me an answer to my so, question? So I'm going scenario. to a real life scenario here. <laughs> But and then I'm going to relate it back to the nuclear bomb okay, thing. Okay, sorry, I'm actually so, listening now. What, <laughs> so, what's your scenario? So uh, back when uh, the dude about the uh, podcast uh, with the uh, nitroglycerin, nitroglycerin and the dynamite, uh-huh. before he created the dynamite, if we said, "All right, we're we're going to prohibit the use of any type of nitroglycerin, no matter what, you can't you can't mess with it. It's too dangerous. It's too unstable." Uh, if we would have done that. Two things I think would have happened. For starters, the 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 brother of the guy that created it um, would actually have lived longer because they wouldn't have been jacking around with nitroglycerin to make it safer, and then he would he wouldn't have died due to like some catastrophic failure in their house or yeah their lab right. The biggest problem is that twenty thousand people a year are dying. In on construction sites because gunpowder is unstable. That's my understanding. Oh right, all over so, the world. So th- thousands of people are dying every year, year after year after year after year because it's so dangerous to handle gunpowder this way. That, oh, that's interesting because I actually I thought that gunpowder was actually safe because you need you need you need pressure and you need um and that was actually one thing that I thought was strange was that I thought that gunpowder was actually relatively safe prior to the creation of dynamite. To the comparison, which was nitroglycerin, right? So it was either gunpowder or nitroglycerin before dynamite. (laughs) I I don't know. Nitroglycerin is extremely unstable. Like, you can't even touch it. You know, it it can fall on the ground and blow up. Whereas gunpowder needs uh, temperature and pressure. If you don't have either one of those, gunpowder is actually relatively safe. And even in the mines, you know, like... um, gunpowder and TNT could actually be preformed into the same shapes and used, but it just wasn't as powerful as nitroglycerin and nitroglycerin is like just out of control. Uh, uh, anyways, my point is, is that uh, if we would have made that regulation, it would have saved the life of his brother. But yet again, we wouldn't have dynamite, which means that we wouldn't have the more efficient means of uh, like use of explosives in order to clear land and stuff. So, the other day I saw this uh, article that talked about having battery-sized nuclear reactors, right? Mm -hmm. So what if you're just a genius, not an evil genius, but a genius, (laughs) 
and because you had this uh, uh, nuclear missile in your house, you end up creating these little, these awesome, you know, uh, nuclear batteries that save the world from the energy crisis. My point is, is that regulations don't necessarily point us in the right direction, like the gutters in the in the bowling alley. They prohibit good things, and we say the trade-off is, well, we're going to prohibit these other bad things from happening in the process. And that's kind of my point is that I, I don't think that we should base our decisions on fear like that, like, oh, my God, Jay's going to annihilate all of Homo <laughs> Omaha with a nuclear weapon. We should base it on good rational judgment. In the case of a nuclear weapon, what if you accidentally made a mistake and blew up the neighborhood? And that risk involved, even with you just making an accident, is enough to, let's say, yeah, we're not going to do that. We're going to make this a law. No nuclear weapons in houses and no experiments, right? I think that's kind of where we went to agree. In the same form with guns, I may accidentally cause harm to somebody with a firearm. Uh-huh. And I can see regulations uh, being in place to prevent stuff like that. But if we're going to use fear to drive, well, without these regulations, we're going to have mass killings. I don't think that that's the appropriate way to make decisions on a government level. I, I don't understand this at all, Chris. You, you, have, yeah. to help, you have to help me. So t- two things. One, it is crazy to me that you think that I can have a nuclear bomb in my in my basement and I don't go to prison. Two... Say I point a gun at you, and you're saying fear shouldn't drive your decision, right? Well, of of course it should, right? Like, you have a fear that I'm going to pull the trigger, right? But I can say, no, no, I didn't pull the trigger yet. I didn't pull the trigger. I didn't do anything wrong, right? So you're saying, like, you can't make laws against pulling a gun on somebody? Oh, no, you can. Oh, okay. So it is okay to fear that are valid, right? Valid fears that are reasonable people are reasonably afraid because they should be, because you should be scared of that shit, right? That can drive our legislation, right? And restrict our freedoms to do things, correct? No, not in the same sense. So if I pull a gun out and threaten you with it, there's a legal term for that, and that's assault, right? Uh There's no reason for me to be going around and putting fear into people, right? That is, by definition, not a polite society. And right. And, okay. So, it, yeah, it, so we agree. That is assault. It should be assault. We're right. keeping it assault. You can't go run around pointing guns at people. Yes. Because they're afraid you're gonna, they're going to get shot. And yeah. causing fear is not okay. Yeah. Right. Okay. Oh, good. So, All right. We're on the same page then. <laughs> and, and what I mean by that is – let me let me illustrate it from another perspective here. So let's – since – the gun issue probably isn't going to work. <laughs> One area that we really screwed this up and we use fear to negatively implement principles uh, and law is with immigration, right? I can't remember what the event was, um, but we had to, we had before World War II started, we had some troops in the Philippines and I can't remember um, what the name of this, but uh, uh, after a, uh, Pearl Harbor was attacked, yeah, I, just a sh- within a day after Pearl Harbor was attacked, Japan turned on the Philippines and uh, we had some military people there and 
and there was like some fighting going on. Uh, General MacArthur, I think was his name. He was actually in charge of the Philippines and he was ordered to get out because they knew they were going to lose it. And uh, eventually the Philippines fell and there was like ridiculous amounts of Philippine soldiers that were taken as prisoners of war and, and American soldiers. Um, and it was really dishonorable for Japanese people. Like they viewed it like, well, we're not going, there's not going to be any prisoners of war because, well, we wouldn't be taking prisoners of war. So what they, this, uh, March, I think it was like 65 miles long where they were just absolutely brutal to the prisoners. Um, you know, they, they use their samurai swords to decapitate them in front of each other. Uh, they stabbed people for no reason. They, they, uh, killed people for needing to go to the bathroom all these other things, and when they finally got them shipped to, to the prisoner POW camps, it was even worse, right? The, the Japanese people made a name for themselves of brutality and uncivilized people. Well, the soldiers, the right. Japanese soldiers. And and what the, at least my interpretation of what happened was, is that the government used this as fuel to, to get people to fear Japanese people and inhibited uh, immigration of Japanese people into the United States and even used it to um, instill in people that it was okay to have Japanese uh, uh, U- U.S. Japanese citizens. Uh, Who were all Jap- in internment camps at the time. Right. Because we, we, we put them all in concentration camps. Yeah. We used fear uh, given like what was going on at the time and how brutally they were treating their captives and all these different things and, and how evil they were as a people, quote unquote, to instill fear into people to make it seem like this was the right thing to do. And to me, that was the wrong thing to do. And that that's the principle that I'm trying to drive home is that if you're, it's, it's easy to create fear in people and then use that fear to be like, well, I have a solution to this fear. Uh, we're just going to imprison all these people in the United States that are U S citizens and have constitutional rights to not have that happen to them. Yeah, well, that's the second, that's part of the yeah. second gutter in their analogy yeah. is you overreact poorly to the, to the possibility and do something stupid like imprisoning thousands of people for no reason. Mm-hmm. Right. That's the second gutter. We've fallen into the second gutter in the analogy. Right. Right. So what, what, what I'm feeling like there's a big gap between you and I on is I feel like legislation can help us as a society drive towards a better outcome on some of these things. And I'm getting the feeling that you think that the vast majority of the time regulation is always doing the wrong thing. Is that fair? Not the vast majority of the time regulation is doing the wrong thing, but when fear is used to drive regulation, it is doing the wrong thing. The vast majority of the time. Sure, but the, the the things we need regulations for are the things I should be scared of, right? Like I should be scared of arsenic in my my drinking water. I should be scared of that, right? And so the EPA has regulations which say, look, you can't have arsenic in the drinking water. That's regulation, right? Mm-hmm. And then MUD conforms with that, tests for it. Right. So we pay through our tax money. We pay all these people to test it and everything and make sure that, you know, there is no arsenic in the or whatever. You know, maybe you're allowed three parts per million. I don't know what how poisonous arsenic is. (laughs) But anyway, um, what was my point? Oh, no, I don't know what my point was. (laughs) 
My, um, my, my point is you're, the, you're, you're, you're tripping on the word fear correctly or I don't know. And what I'm saying is I want regulations of things that I'm afraid of because those are the things that scare me and need to be regulated. Right. Mm-hmm. Like if I'm going to get on an airplane I want to know because I'm scared of dying <laughs> in a fiery crash. Yeah, I'm scared of dying. I want an FAA that inspects the planes and stuff and certifies the pilots and stuff. I want that. And and that's all fear-based, right? Like we're, you know, it's not it, it is the fear of me dying. Right. That drives that cycle. So I think that's good. I think we need lots of regulations based on fear, the fear of getting killed by everything. <laughs> right. So and and I think that's earlier, the important stuff. It, earlier, I was trying to stage that there was there was two options here. We could use reason to uh, institute these type of regulations or guidances or laws, or we could use fear, right? So I don't think that even in the case of the arsenic in the water, we should use fear, and the, we should use a reason and reality, meaning that doctors can say this is how much is an acceptable safe amount uh, of arsenic in the water. And that's, that's how much, that's all that the water supply is allowed. Oh, that's fine. Okay. So now I get it. So, but politically it's, it's easy for somebody. Let's say that the safe level is 10, (laughs) 10 uh, and we're getting nine, nine parts per million, whatever. It's easy for a a politician to come in and say, hey, look, we're getting nine parts per million of arsenic in the water. Oh, my God, you're going to die. It's arsenic. It's terrible. Oh, oh my God. And then people are, oh, elect me and I'll I'll reduce the arsenic in half, right? Right. Oh, and if you don't, by the way, you're going to die because arsenic is universally bad. (laughs) So. The water was actually safe before if we use reason and reality, but this politician has used it to decrease the parts per million and at probably enormous costs, and there's really no benefit. And he's basically used fear to do that, not only to get elected, but to get reelected, but to see, hey, look at what I've done. I've saved your lives. You know, thank me, you know, bow down and kiss my feet because I saved your life. Oh, you know, like all the while we used reason to set the original scale to begin with, but he used fear to push it to the limits. Yeah. And and that's what I'm trying to say is the difference between using reason and fear. Um, Fear is how we waste money in the water supply and how we put Japanese people into into camps. (laughs) Right. We waste, waste money in the water supply? What'd you say? Uh, the the arsenic in the water. Oh, oh, so it was safe at nine, but we've reduced it to five. Oh, right, because we were scared because a politician made us afraid. Well, five's probably better, you know. But that's fine, you know. Whatever. Yeah, they, right. They, they don't need a scaremonger to do that. Right. Um. So, and and my point was that it was before. It was not. It was not harmful before. Yeah, it wasn't we, an emergency right. at nine because even ten is safe. You know? Right. So, so it's so, probably an emergency at a hundred, not at yeah nine. Or a thousand or whatever. So, okay, I get it. Yeah. All right. I think we're on the same page with the, yeah, you should use reason. Because, like, when when people run political attack ads, ads, typically what that does is say, oh, 
I need to go do research on this person that you're attacking because probably they're doing something good that you don't want me to know about. (laughs) You know, you're, you're trying to mischaracterize what they actually said. Right. So, and I don't think most people do that. I think most people take at face value the attack and they're like, Oh my God, that's so durable. You know, yeah. As, as generally speaking on a political attack ad, I assume that they're lying. Yeah. (laughs) And so I go read about, okay, show me, the evidence that this is actually this is actually what happened. Right, they, they actually did this thing. Yeah, and I, I'm not saying that fear is shouldn't be any part of your 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 decision making stuff, or that. Um, I, I'm just saying that it, it shouldn't be the. It, it may be the reason why you start to investigate things, but any decision that we make as far as uh, regulation or laws should be not based on fear, but on reason and reality and, and the rational choices that we have before us. Yeah. And, um, you know, and I think another case where, where people are driven by fear is with nuclear power. The nuclear power is a order of magnitudes safer for the human race than even solar power or wind energy. It, it, you know, the the human life cost per gigawatt output is like one tenth that of the next one on the rung, which I think is like wind energy. <laughs> right. And I, the the fact that people are so afraid about it, um, uh, you know, like even disposal of the waste and all these other different scientific things that we know to be proven uh, true realities, um, they they can't seem to get past their fear to look objectively at the scientific facts. Um, you know, uh, vaccines, same thing, you know, <laughs> and, and you could take anything that you want and put it into that category of people using fear to drive their reaction. The thing is, I'm just putting different things into there than you are. I'm saying gun control needs to be put into there. Vaccines need to be put into there. Uh, nuclear regulation, immigration, everything should be based on reason and reality and not fear. Sure. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I was confused when yeah. I was disagreeing. Uh, at 40 minutes, they talk about surveillance versus sous-valence, which I thought was really cool. Um, so surveillance is top-down, top down, I'm in charge, I'm going to watch you, like mm-hmm. in a casino, right? Sous-valence is being aware in community of your peers of each other. Right. Keeping an eye on somebody. And if they're not doing good, like, hey, uh, what's going on? Can we help you with something or whatever? Mm-hmm. There's a different word for that. Sousvalence, which I thought was really interesting. And one of the points that they were making around this 40 minute mark um, was that we can't work our way out of this like China is trying to by blocking everyone's access to civil liberties and surveillance. But sousvalence can keep a kid that's having problems at his high school from grabbing his dad's gun and, you know, shooting up his school, maybe. So, I mean, I that's that interesting. Neat. So this is a, this is actually another thing where I think I kind of, uh, I don't know really what the right word for it is, but it's not that I disagree. I, I think that some of those things could help in probably minimal situations. But uh, have I ever told you about one of the uh, major things that I learned from uh, Dave Chappelle about, uh, his uh, rat in a maze comparison. Oh wait, you did tell me rat in a maze one time. 
Yeah, there's. Uh, some... I've forgotten. I think do it again. So he basically, uh, go, I think it was at like a graduation or something. He was he was speaking and he he was talking about this lesson that he learned from his mom. I think it was, and he was say, he was talking about how we're uh, as a society we're getting away from morals and and making decisions be- based upon what we're taught is better, um, um, or worse, right? So instead of making absolute judgments about what is the moral and right thing to do. We're saying, well, this way is better, or this way is uh, going to improve things or, or this is going to solve problems. Um, and, uh, he said that, um, the thing about it is, is that if you're going by that metric about what's better, then you're just a, a rat in a maze that's trying to find the cheese, you know, because, you know, you come to this, if you're the the rat and you're trying to get to the cheese, um, the maze is actually just guiding you to this predestined point. So you have this idea in your mind, and, and this is just an example, um, gun control is better, or, or this this principle is better. Uh, I'll just give another one, like a God. <laughs> I don't, <laughs> or we're gonna we're gonna, the, the cheese is God or the cheese is gun control or whatever. So you're going through this maze in your life, and and what's happening is is that the maze is eventually guiding you to this cheese. Whatever you do, whatever decision you make, is about reaching this particular conclusion. Um, but once you realize that um, life is about morals and making decisions yourself, then you realize that you're in this maze going after the cheese i i feel like being in the maze if the people that are around you doing the seuss is it seuss valence seuss valence are just there as ways to guide you to the cheese right but which which cheese the capitalism cheese or which whichever cheese whichever you designate as the cheese uh that that could be capitalism you know uh uh or it could be socialism or, uh, you know, you have all these people around you. And, and what comes to my mind is, so I think that you and I would agree that um, killing babies is wrong, right? Asterisk. <laughs> what? Asterisk. <laughs> <laughs> we can both objectively say <laughs> that there's really no reason to shoot a baby in the head. Um, oh, this is a really bad baby. <laughs> or maybe it was going to be Hitler. I would still have. I I don't think I would think that it would be the moral thing to do to go back in time and shoot baby Hitler in the head. Maybe it would be the right thing. Uh, however, it's actually related in the sense there's a book called uh, Ordinary Men. Have you ever heard of it? Ordinary Men. Yeah. Uh-uh. So it's a book about um, the people uh, that were ordinary men that were. Uh, drafted to be local police in Germany when they were rounding up the Jews. And some of the orders that they were given was that they couldn't take people that were sick and they couldn't take babies. So they were told these ordinary men like me and you that were drafted into the police department to gather these people up where they were told to just kill them, right? It seems like the Seuss valence in those particular cases enforced the status quo to carry out the orders, right? Because they're going after the cheese instead of making moral decisions. 
I guess that's my ultimate point is so if somebody wants to do something bad, if they're in the wrong group or they're in a group of people that just turn the, turn their heads the other way, what good is that? And I, I think to some extent, I think the only solution is to teach people what good moral values they should have and possess. And that's unfortunately the only way to go about it. <laughs> because otherwise you just end up with a bunch of people in a maze going for the cheese and committing immoral acts throughout their whole journey. So who do you think should be setting the morality? That's a good question. I think that uh, anybody can pr- anybody that can prove what's moral. Really? Yeah. I mean, I think that you can you have the ability to do that. We have the ability to ration, rationalize with uh, other people. And um, I, I think that that's one thing that kind of gets me about a lot of the regulations that we do um, is that we unnecessarily put people in prison for no reason. Uh, gun control in its original form was to prohibit black people uh, that were slaves from being able to have guns to stand up to their owners. Mm-hmm. Uh, today, it's used to probably uh, put disproportionate amount of African Americans behind bars for longer sentences, uh, or to uh, they call them enhancements. You know, you know, like if I get caught with a bag of weed on me. Um, or maybe next sitting next to me and I'm sitting here cleaning my rifle. Maybe, maybe my, uh, my buddy's sitting next to me and he has a bag of weed in his pocket and got the cops bust in and they're like, Oh, Hey, he's cleaning his gun over here. That's an enhancement on your sentence. <laughs> you know, <laughs> to me, that's irrational and we, we just shouldn't treat people like that. So in this podcast, I think all they're saying is, Hey, here's a different word. It's called Seuss Valens. Yeah. And it's, the the act of caring about um, the the people around you in your neighborhood and your you know church group and your school and your workplace you know whatever that it's not a top down authoritarian kind of thing where the boss is watching whether or not you're clicking on porn it's a hey just be aware if if somebody in your environment right that is struggling. Maybe you want to ask them about it, and if they don't want to talk to you about it, that's fine. You, know, you can butt out. But and it, it, my my point wasn't that they're saying that anything's good or bad. They're just saying that here's a different word, <laughs> and it oh, means yeah. it's not top down. That's all I meant. Oh <laughs> yeah, I, I just thought I was going to mention that for five seconds and <laughs> move on to my next point. <laughs> oh here. my bad. No, yeah. it's fine. So yeah, uh, obviously human relationships can be toxic. Like if I report you for. You know, you know, dog abuse because, you know, Missy, whatever. So <laughs> what is Missy, not true. Missy's, Missy's a turd. Or you should report me for dog abuse because my, I was raking leaves and didn't watch these two morons snuck away from me <laughs> behind my back today. Uh, yeah. So at 41 minutes, I thought this was interesting. So the, when in the invention of dynamite in the, um, in the whole Alfred Nobel, uh, storyline that they keep coming back to over and over and over again. What they saw at the right before the turn of the 19th century is that media coverage of these train bombings that were occurring with the with the dynamite. These newspapers were making tons of money off of newspaper the of selling millions of copies for a nickel apiece of these uh, these stories with these gruesome photos and. Newspapers were extremely profitable, and the publication of these attacks 
in the UK and in America of railroads um, drove statistically more attacks. So you can see the highly, Oh, I'll just keep reading because I'm about to say the point that's in my notes. Um, so, so many great media empires were built this way, apparently making money off of the sensationalism of here's what happened. Um, so it says eventually editorial standards were created because they were, they, that newspapers realized that they were a part of the problem. Like at first they didn't realize that they were driving this phenomenon of, of copycats and the original editorial standards were established because of the, the train bombings apparently. So this is all in a framework called social contagion theory. For other examples they said was the JFK assassination inspired more assassinations. When you look at the, the trends of shooting shootings that JFK and all the coverage of JFK bumped the trends of shooting. Um, plane hijacking, which was very popular when I was first born. <laughs> the best predictor statistically of plane hijacking is a previous highly publicized hijacking, apparently. Not what leaders in power, not what group has the most power. The the coverage of these events can actually drive a bunch of these events, which I thought was really interesting. So if you're curious, jump to 41 minutes on the on that podcast and listen to that whole stuff. Uh, so at 45 minutes, they have a really interesting concept, I thought, where they talk about, hey, when you're on social media and you have millions of followers, maybe what we need is some sort of required ethical training. When you get to 1 million followers... You need to understand that you can't be telling everybody that it's hilarious to grab a straight razor and, you know, run around school with it or something. <laughs> right. Now, how would that work? How would you implement that? I have no idea. And that is all my notes, I think, that I want to get into. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I definitely thought it was a uh, certainly an interesting uh, podcast. It, it kind of uh, – usually I like listening to anything that causes some introspection, you know, and – uh Oh, I, I, a lot of times I pick up on like, uh, I don't know if nuance is the right word, but little subtle words that, uh, maybe I read too much into it. Like, um, they were talking about how it took us a long time to regulate dynamite. And, uh, it was almost like a, a, a they threw a quick jab at, at the United States being slow to regulation, mm-hmm. you know, like, um, and one thing that I thought was interesting was, is that I think the ATF took over, uh, the regulation of dynamite in the seventies. And, uh, 1970s? Yeah. So it was late. Holy crap. Um, and that was in spite of a lot of events taking place um, prior to that where dynamite was actually used in these horrific ways. Um, well, well, they said in America what finally got the politicians active was that the private corporations, the train industry, said, look, this is insane. You're, we're, we're getting all of our shit blown up too much. You have to regulate this stuff. Well, and that's the, I, I was actually trying to figure out like where the first regulations for dynamite was in the United States. Yeah, and I, I didn't see anything until the uh, the ATF took it over in the seventies. Huh. Uh, so I, I so I wonder if UP and other companies pressured that into happening. I and don't know. If, were there train bombings in the seventies? I don't know anything about train bombings in the U.S. Uh, yeah, it was. Uh, to be honest, I thought it was actually kind of hard to find some concrete history on the matter. Or uh, even some first, some of the first regulations uh, that came from it. So I, huh. I don't know um, if in the seventies the ATF was just tasked with enforcing uh, 
laws. They, they maybe they that's when they were given the enforcement authority over explosives. Well, if you want it, I'll buy you a copy of her book because presumably she has references in there. Oh yeah, that might be a good idea. I'd, where she um, she'll cite, hey, this is where this railroad finally had enough and testified before Congress on this date. You know, blah blah blah. Oh, and so it's it's interesting, uh, even if that's the case. Uh, because there are some pretty evil things that happen with dynamite. Um, I, I think I might actually have some of those in my notes um, that even happened. I think oh, uh, one of the ones I have was in the, the 1920s, I think. Oh, while you're looking for that, I missed this note. At 18 minutes, she talks about how um, it used to be that Napoleon, for example, and during the French Revolution, that that conscription was invented basically in those eras, which undergirds the central power of state actors to mobilize thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. And nowadays this mobilization of armies is no longer solely a power of governments Mm -hmm. that certain individuals that are extremely popular have that power for good and for ill. So then they talk about a really sad way that it was used for ill, which I don't really want to talk about. So, so uh, the bath bombings is what they're called in Michigan. It's called the bath school disaster. Uh, was a series of violent attacks perp- perpetrated by Andrew Kehoe on May 18th, 1927. And I, I can't remember the first time I was ever introduced to this. Um, I, and I think, that I was actually uh, investigating the Sandy Hook shootings. Yeah. Uh, because I just, I was like, has this ever happened? This idea where people just go in and kill children like this. Um, and what this guy did was, well, it was Andrew Kehoe. He, uh, uh, Bath Township, Michigan, United States, uh, basically uh, used dynamite to blow up a school building. Um it killed 38 elementary school children, six adults, and at least 58 other people. And if you actually, it's a crazy story that I'm, I'm surprised that I had never really heard of before. Uh, I actually stumbled across it, but it's a pretty intricate story of how, um, he had a farm and that's how he kind of accumulated his dynamite. And what he did was, is he actually prepared secondary explosions and, half of the explosions that he had rigged didn't even go off. So he, he basically, uh, uh, one wing of the school, the explosion did go off. And when, uh, people came to help, uh, he actually set off a second set of explosions, which, uh, killed, uh, people that came to help. Mm. I mean, it was a total, absolute atrocious event. You would think that something like that, would have been used to start to regulate dynamite, but instead it was railroads, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Apparently that's what they said in the podcast. Uh, which, and that's kind of what I, I guess a, a thing that I was trying to point out is that even if it was true, it, it certainly seems weird that we would decide to do it just because they're messing with a business. Um, I certainly am a pro business person, but it certainly seems like a strange point in time to do it. But even then in the seventies, if, if, even if that was just when the ATF took over the enforcement of, of uh, explosives, you know, after that was one of the most uh, deadly explosions 
uh, in U.S. history, which was in the 90s with Timothy McVeigh and the Oklahoma City bombings. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, it's, it's to, I, I guess my main point there is um, uh, how did the how did the regulations prevent the evil action itself? How does that apply to the bowling alley? <laughs> uh, one thing that people have like um, a good argument against, I think, as far as like weapons and things, is grenades. Right? Um, it it's against the law to have grenades, and I think it it should be against the law. And and nuclear bombs, right? <laughs> Are we still on the same page? <laughs> Well, I, I, I think it, it just to reiterate with the, the, the bombs, I feel <laughs> like I am very pro scientific research and people creating new ideas. Yeah, that's fine. And, I'm uh, not saying that you can't have Los Alamos nuclear laboratory working on nuclear research. That's fine. Yeah, I'm yeah. saying I can't have a freaking nuclear yeah. bomb in my yeah. basement. Well, you could. I just wouldn't know anyways. <laughs> as long as you just hit it from me well enough and did your research, I'm not, I'd never killed anybody. Yeah. I'm not saying, <laughs> I'm not saying it's not possible that I wouldn't get caught. I'm saying it should be against the law. And if I'm caught, I should go to prison. Yeah. And, um, at, at any rate, I can't remember the, the, the point I was going to make. But <laughs> oh, sorry. No, it, no uh, grenades. You said grenades should be illegal and they are illegal. Right. And that's because I don't really see a defensive or self-defense <laughs> purpose for them, right? So, like, their sole purpose is to maim and cause destruction. You, you know, like, I, I feel like uh, I should not be fettered in the defense of um, my right to life and my right to live it and to be safe in my own home, right? So if Nancy Pelosi wants to be like, hey, AR-15s are so evil and they're so dangerous, we should be scared of them and run around in circles until they're all gone. Uh, to me, that's actually 100% ridiculous. And um, and she's just using fear to uh, take away uh, something, that's, something that's a legitimate use, a rational home defense use item, whereas a grenade has no rational self-defense use associated with it. You know, I can't... Uh, I can't justify somebody breaking into my house and me throwing a grenade into the room. <laughs> right. Uh, I guess, uh, I guess. So I'm not against regulation. I, I guess uh, just to reiterate, I'm against the rational application of regulation uh, in you're, the pursuit of establishing people's individual rights. And uh, you said you're against the rational. No, I'm, did I say that backwards? Yeah. Sometimes I say shit backwards, but I, I'm for the the rational use of regulations. Cool. And I can have my nuke, right? Or I can't have it. Well, I guess if you where, can really afford one, on I mean, I would think, that, I would hope that you would spend the money on buying me a new GPU. You know, being nice to your neighborhood, and getting a new GPU for him, but. All right, so we're still not on the same page on Jay having a nuclear bomb in his bed. So, and this is where I would love so, to. I would love to get a survey of how many people in the greater Omaha area. So there's 300,000 people here. I bet 10 people would say it's okay for me to have a nuke, and you're one of them. So let's uh let's uh bring it down to earth a little bit for the, <laughs> the rational. So let's say I have a sign posted on a school that says no guns allowed. 
So let, let's say you possess a firearm on this prohibited area. Yeah. Um, is that wrong? Yes. What if you were there as a police officer with a gun? Well, there's an exception in the law for that. So there are, so the, the possession in and of itself of a gun in that area where it says you can't possess one is not the evil act, right? No, and if there was an active shooter and my kid's in there and I've got a gun in the in the truck, I might go in with my gun, and I don't think that's wrong either. Right, and even and you might even do that. And knowing, I'd probably get shot by the police because I'm a fucking idiot with a gun, so they're going right. to shoot me. And, and that's a risk that you're willing to take. Yeah. Right? You're saying that that's the right thing to do. I'm not There's saying – I don't know if it's the right thing to do, but it's probably what I would do. Yeah. I guess what I'm trying to say is is that we – Generally speaking, I don't like to criminalize things that aren't criminal. The The mere possession of a gun on school property is not – there's nothing inherently wrong with that in <laughs> and of itself, mm-hmm. right? That's it. Uh-huh. Not, so if I take a gun to a school and with the intent to kill people, that – is what's wrong. Uh, uh, right. It, but it the, doesn't, the potential of my nuclear weapon in my basement, it's, it's not worth the risk. Whatever research it is that I'm claiming I'm doing, it's not okay. I should be in prison. <laughs> what if we would have cured cancer <laughs> with a nuclear bomb? <laughs> I don't know. You got to think outside the box sometimes, you know, <laughs> I'm not talking about, I have, an ounce of <laughs> material that may or may not be useful for an MRI scanner or something. What I'm talking about is a shitload of dynamite, which takes a critical mass of uranium 235 yeah. and jams it together to the point of whatever criticality, which will then blow up and kill a million people. Yeah. Well, that's that not was, okay. I should well, be in fucking prison, Chris. And I, I right. can't, I, I think, uh, I think at the time, well at the time, and even now I agree that it, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be in your house because of the unnecessary risk that it proposes for the whole community. Yeah. You, you know, your cats could, <laughs> that's exactly make, my point. Maybe you have it like, like above your fireplace, this it critical mass. It doesn't matter where it and, is. And the cat knocks it off on the day that you yeah. go have your little lunch things. And, and, you know, it just goes into critical meltdown. And now nobody can live in their house around here because you were trying to find a cure for if you're for AIDS or whatever. <laughs> I, yeah. So my point isn't that we can't have those laws um, and that it's not what I'm trying to isolate is the act itself. You know, like there's no criminal act in having and possessing a nuclear weapon. And <laughs> and you almost have to feel that way because the United States possesses <laughs> nuclear weapons, right? Yeah, you know, I, I, I right. think I think nuclear weapons are immoral, regardless, because the only thing you can do is kill millions of innocent people with nuclear weapons. Right, and we definitely use the fear, you know, involved with like what happened in uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, you know, to kind of really kind of drive that kind of point home. Although regular bombs killed far more people. Yeah, the fire bombings of Tokyo killed more people than the yeah. nukes did. 
Yeah, so I, uh, it's just like a different way that kind of terrifies people. So they're like, oh, my God, nuclear weapons, we can't have them. Um, yeah, I agree. We, I cannot have them in my basement. Yeah. Well, I meant um, <laughs> deep. I think it's immoral. I, I, there, give give me a moral scenario of where we could ever use a nuclear. Oh, I got one. Okay, so if aliens invade and we can shoot a nuke into the into the alien spaceship, then that would be. I mean, that come would on. be moral. Haven't you ever seen Armageddon? I mean, come on. Blowing up an asteroid with a <laughs> yeah yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> on yeah. If, so I will admit, if you that, vote for me, I'm getting rid of America's nuclear arsenal. So what if we actually got tack, attacked in response from other? How, how does that? killing billions of innocent people help us? We're still dead. So I guess what what's wrong with? Uh, let me ask you this: What's wrong with possessing them as a nuclear deterrent without the intent to use them? Because eventually they'll go off. Yeah, that, that could be true. I don't know. Uh, you're probably right. Yeah, we've come hair trigger close to blowing up the world yeah. several times. So Canadian you, geese almost ended the world yeah, on radar. So, so all things considered, I would, t- I would, I would actually agree that you having a nuclear weapon in your house would be bad. I mean, I would, I would absolutely assassinate a political leader that attacked our country. Absolutely. But I wouldn't kill a million people in a city just because that's the city he's in. That's not okay. Are you talking about with the Hiroshima and Nagasaki? I, I'm I'm talking about I cannot I can't figure out an ethical use of nuclear weapons. The whole point of a nuclear weapon is to wipe out a city. Yeah. And most of the people in the city, they had no fucking control over whatever the hell's going on. Right. They don't have control over it. It's not their fault. Whatever's going on is going on. So you're killing innocent people. It's terrorism. So I I can't imagine when the use of nuclear weapon is not one of the worst things you could possibly do. So would you put as a human would, being, would you roll like a carpet bombing into that same category? Yeah. Any, yeah. anytime you're killing. See, so like every time we blow up a wedding party in Afghanistan, which was popular a few years back, right? We just blow up the fucking wedding party. Mm-hmm. What, what are we doing? Maybe we killed a terrorist leader, but if our quote, uh, what's it called? What's the phrase for collateral damage, right? Mm-hmm. If our quote collateral damage killed 15 people you've just created children that are gonna be 15 new terrorists or 30 new terrorists it's not only immoral to kill 15 innocent people to get one person that's maybe guilty you know Mm -hmm. but you're making the problem worse yeah because they now hate you forever and their kids are going to hate you forever and their kids' kids are going to hate you forever. It's not, it's not helping. Oh, so yeah. I, I'm pro targeted assassination. <laughs> I, I actually am a hundred percent behind I, that. Idea. I'm not okay with leveling villages because they're in there somewhere, you yeah. know? And so the, so if you want to fight me, use human shields because I'm not okay killing human shields. Right. So that's, that's my strategic weakness is that I'm not willing to kill innocent civilians. Yeah. So strap, strap human shields to yourself and roll your fucking tanks into Omaha and I won't shoot it (laughs) because I'm a wuss. How did we get on that? I I give you permission to shoot me if I'm being used as human shield. I'll do that ahead of time.
because uh, I don't want to be a human shield. But I will say. Well, I wouldn't shoot. Uh, let's see. How would that work? How do human shields actually work? You're just hiding behind him, right? And if you're a sharpshooter, you're well. Anyway, I don't know. So, have you ever have you ever heard the uh, of the uh, uh, morality quizzes that are kind of associated with stuff that's somewhat similar? So, like, uh, you're presented with like a you see like a train rolling down a track, and if it goes one way, it's going to kill one adult. Yeah, the trolley problem. It's called. Yeah. So, like, if it was uh, if it was going towards one child. Or two adults, would you direct it to the child? Uh, how old are the adults? Uh, one's 18 and one's 75. Versus what, a four-year-old? Uh, we'll make it like a, like a one-year-old. A one-year-old versus an 18-year-old <laughs> and a 75-year-old. <laughs> yeah. Shit. The math's <laughs> hard. Yeah, you don't have to answer it. It was kind of more of a rhetorical thing. But. No, it's not for me, though, because I would literally run math on that. You would? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, like, uh, I'd, and maybe I've even brought this up before, but, like, in a college course, they asked us, like, uh, like what order we would save people from a trench. Did we ever talk about that? Uh, I don't so, think so. So, uh, there was, like, an old person. And so, like, they actually had, like, little paragraphs for each person. The older woman was on the verge of curing cancer and uh and then there's like you know some younger person people and some women and, and a dude and uh i actually said at the time i would try to save the most life right and it's like and the, the saddest s- person there so me you'd <laughs> save me first so i would literally get people out as fast <laughs> as i could and that meant that i would have to get the children first because they would be the lightest. I oh, could, I could quickest, get one. Quickest to grab them. Get, get them out. That means I could get back down the hole and get the next person, right? Well, if you grabbed an adult, couldn't they help you grab other people? Theoretically. Yeah. But that, that wasn't really part of the question. But then so, you could, you'd have a multiplying effect of how many right. people you can pull out of the trench. So I said I would rescue the last, the old woman last, even though she was on the verge of creating like a cure for cancer or whatever. Yeah, well, science usually doesn't work out, so it's probably not going to work. <laughs> and uh, Everyone always says they're on the verge of curing. That's how you get your next grant. So one of the girls in the class actually um, asked me why, and I said, well, she has the least amount of life left to live, and she'd probably be one of the hardest ones to rescue, you know, and I'm trying to save as many people as I can. And she just, like, she couldn't take it anymore. She, like, broke down into tears. She was just like, oh... I would save her because it reminds me of my grandma. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that's that's your order. Good for you. <laughs> um, uh, so, all right. Well, my butt hurts. Can we be done? Oh yeah, we can. We can be done anytime. Excellent. The two hour mark. My butt window has closed. All right. Well, this has been episode thirty five, and we largely talked about the podcast. Your undivided attention, and the name of that episode was what the. The struggle of what is it? The dark side of decentralization. So yeah, go listen to that podcast, that episode of that podcast, and we will see you in episode thirty six at some future date. Thanks, Chris. Hey, thanks. <laughs>